Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 194. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Darren Connor DeAngelis. Darren, how are you doing? I'm excellent, Steve. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm just excited to talk with you about everything that's going on and any idea that comes in our minds. Uh, well, we got, I got a lot of those. Uh, one thing I never have is yeah. a shortage of things to talk about. And what you and I were discussing prior to hitting the record button here was what you've been up to for the last eight to nine months. You kind of disappeared off the scene for a while and you were explaining that a bit. Why don't you give yourself a quick intro and talk about what you've been up to for the last almost a year now? Because all of that is going to probably lead heavily into the conversation that we wind up having here. Sure. So my name is Darren Connor DeAngelis. I am a black belt, I guess, originally under Rafael Rosendo de Santos, who's the teacher that I'm with now. And then after blue belt, I moved to Atos and I trained there for multiple different years. And competition was my life for about, I don't know, five years. And I competed in world championships, PAMs, everything. I, I really tried to be the absolute best in the world. That was my goal for that five to six year span. I won world titles at blue and purple and some other stuff at brown. And then at brown belt, I left Atos and I moved to Keenan, who eventually gave me my black belt. And I stayed there for a little while learning under him. And then I got injured. I just, a simple meniscus tear that led to a reconstruction, led to a six month recovery process. And after that, a marriage as well with my, with my wife. And that kind of, as I was telling you, kind of changed my view from somewhat of an egocentric to more of a sociocentric view and less about me basically and less about what I want to accomplish, what I can do, what I, what this ego thinks it wants and, and moving on to maybe what, what other people want around me and how can I help them. And that kind of has led me into this mental health sphere. And that's kind of where my mind is now. I'm extremely interested in philosophy, psychology, mythology, Joseph Campbell, Jordan Peterson, Carl Jung, all these different incredible philosophers, speakers, thinkers. I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's just really where my head is now. Makes a ton of sense. And what you're talking about, I think, is probably part of the the journey for any athlete. Being a professional athlete is, a, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it is a selfish endeavor, right? Because ultimately, this is not a team sport. Yes, of course, you need a good team to succeed. But at the end of the day, you're going to be the one going out there and competing. And to dedicate that much of your life to something requires you to prioritize your own accomplishments really above and beyond other people's accomplishments, unfortunately. Now, that's all great when you're young and you're only accountable to yourself. But the challenge that happens as we all get older, you know, we get married, we have kids, we have more obligations and responsibilities even beyond that. And it gets a lot harder to devote everything you've got to this personal pursuit of jujitsu. And a lot of the athletes I talk to have this situation that you've described. I don't know what you would really call it, whether it'd be like a jujitsu existential crisis, but mm -hmm. it is a very normal thing. And even myself as a hobbyist, I've had the same thing where as I got to 
brown belt and black belt, I had to kind of reassess what this sport meant to me and what its place was in my life. So I think your journey here is fascinating. I think it's something everyone goes through eventually is this transition phase. And I'd love to explore exactly how you got there. So I'd love to talk about what the mindset shift was and where you were at, what happened and what made you decide this new path for you? Sure. So I would say I was in this extremely single track focused mindset of I must become a black belt world champion. That is the only way in jiu-jitsu to make a living. That was kind of this myth that I was given from, I don't know how early, maybe at the beginning of my journey. And it's funny, you could even suggest that the beginning of my journey was rather nonchalant. It wasn't very well thought out. I didn't think about the future when I was thinking of, I was thinking about the future, but not past the future of becoming a black belt world champion. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to train this sport that I just picked up and become the absolute best at it because this seems like the right thing to do. Like, what? How did I get that idea? I don't know, but I just, I didn't have anything else that I was interested in. So that's what I said. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And that's when I moved to San Diego and did all these things. But I mean, the transition, what you're, what you're talking about, this transition, I believe it started about the age of 22. I'm 25 now. And it, it really, I mean, every single time that I would win one of these tournaments, I would realize like, okay, well, wonderful. I just gained some followers on Instagram. I gained some social media awareness. That makes me feel good for a little bit until I put down my phone and then I pick it back up again and maybe I feel good again. But I mean, this stuff is just so transient. These these accomplishments, these these feelings of superiority that I was able to to feel as I was training and beating my teammates or whatever it may be. And I just, I realized like, this can't be it. There must be something more. There's no meaning. I lost meaning, you could say, in the act of competing, in the act of training, in the act of destroying my body, or so I perceived every single day, twice a day with my friends. Just, I mean, it's ridiculous. The atmospheres that I've been in now looking back, and I guess the transition came when I, when I noticed an interest seeping through outside of my jiu-jitsu interest. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's more to life than just jiu-jitsu. There's more, jiu-jitsu isn't the only thing that I can do. And I think what I realized that I was actually in love with isn't necessarily jiu-jitsu, but it's the, the moment, the presence that jiu-jitsu provides you because you're fighting this other human being and you're so into it with this person, that is literally the only thing that can be focused on in the moment or else you're going to be choked, armbarred, hurt, whatever it may be. So that is like a, the ultimate presence trigger. And that's what I was addicted to is this, this presence that jiu-jitsu provides. And realizing that that presence can be found in other things outside of jiu-jitsu, I mean, that maybe was the thing that moved me along, transitioned me further to whatever it is that's coming now. You know, it's funny you explain it that way because I've always said that jujitsu is a forced mindfulness practice. You, if you are doing jujitsu, you will have to do it mindfully. You have zero choice in the matter. It's not like meditating where, you know, oh, your mind can drift off and it can get frustrating and it can throw you out of the rhythm. With jujitsu, you literally have another person trying to choke you unconscious or injure you. And so that kind of makes it hard to be thinking about what's going on at work <laughs> when, you know, when you've got that kind of immediate threat in front of you. And for a lot of people, I think this is their first experience to anything resembling mindfulness training. You know, not mm. everyone goes and does yoga. Not everyone is going to go and download Headspace and try meditation. But for people who try jujitsu, this might be their first experience for something where they really get to understand what mindfulness is like. And this is something that my coach had always said to me, which is, okay, when you come to jujitsu and you step on the mat, you leave your troubles at the door, right? Whatever happened during mm. the day, forget about that. We're here to do jujitsu. We're here to learn. We're here to practice. We're here to have fun. And that's one of the beautiful things about it is it teaches people to be present. And I kind of feel like maybe that's one of the reasons why it's such an addictive sport. It's a uh, 
Jiu-jitsu mm. is addictive in the way that I have never seen another sport be addictive. Like you will see white belts who will completely repurpose their identity because they've discovered jujitsu and now it's the only thing they care about. So yeah. for me, I, I think you're onto something. I think that mindfulness aspect of jujitsu is such a key part of why it is so attractive to people when they get started. Oh, I think you're right. I'm shaking in my chair right now, just of energy and excitement for this idea of mindfulness being spoken about. I mean, it's, it, I think you're completely right. It's, it's just the thing that we all love. That, that cannot be denied. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if part of it is demographic too. You know, with jujitsu, you're going to appeal to a lot of young people who have come to this for the first time. If you're talking about people who are doing meditation training, I would presume these probably tend to be people who are a little bit older, you know, going into their 30s, 40s, mm. 50s plus. Whereas for jujitsu, I mean, this is very appealing to people in their 20s and even younger. So when you experience this for the first time, it's just such a powerful stress reliever. It's really good at helping you kind of get balance and perspective in terms of what's going on in your life. And so what you wind up seeing is there's so many people who once they discover jujitsu, you know, even though they're only a white belt, they won't shut up about it. It takes over their whole life. Mm -hmm. They add BJJ to their Instagram handle because now that's mm -hmm. very much a part of their identity. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you keep at it long enough, then yeah, there is a risk to letting jujitsu consume your whole life and losing that balance because like you said, if jujitsu is your whole life, any stresses that you have coming out of jujitsu will consume your whole life. So if your entire identity is that of a competitor, any sort of setback on your competitive journey can just derail you mentally in your entire life. And that's why I think so many people like yourself and like myself as well have gone through this process of reevaluating what jujitsu means to them and how it fits into the broader picture. Mm. Something, a thought came up as you were speaking, and it was kind of an addition to what you're talking about in regards to these over-attachments from a novice young person entering in jiu-jitsu, how common that is. And I was thinking of an idea that I know that I've been struggling with and still, I imagine, still has an impact on the various choices that I make. And it's this idea of being a wunderkind as it's referred to as in, in German, but it really what it is, is just being a prodigy. And I think many Jitsu athletes, including myself in the past, had this idea of they must be this prodigy. They must be so incredibly good at this sport in order to win these world titles, in order to do all this. And that becomes the identification, or at least the desired identification, along with this jiu-jitsu athlete being that. I don't know if this, this has any, any thoughts for you. It definitely does, actually. I have seen this firsthand. I have seen incredibly elite level athletes who could tie me into a pretzel without even thinking about it. I have seen them just completely struggle with the mental game because of those expectations, because they mm -hmm. feel like if you're not the world champion, you're nobody. And that is kind of a, a weird material thing in jujitsu that I know everyone is super concerned about, right? Everyone, of course, who if you decide to be a professional competitor, of course, you're going to want to win a world championship. But so many people in the sport judge their own worth based on their ability to, to win those medals, right? Yeah. And the problem is not many people are ever going to win them, right? There's only a handful of people who will ever be able to call themselves a world champion. There are, I don't even know how many people in the world who do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I would presume hundreds of yeah. thousands to millions, right? So no matter how good you are, the odds of you becoming that world champion are extraordinarily slim, Yeah. which is not to say you shouldn't go for it if you want it. But what that does mean is if your whole identity and sense of self-worth is tied into some long shot achievement that very few people ever reach you're kind of setting yourself up for a life of misery. And as was mine. Yeah, yeah. And I think the battle that so many athletes have is trying to juggle that balancing act of, yes, I want to be number one in the world. And yes, I'm willing to put in the work to do it. But on the flip side, I can't let that define who I am as a person because that's the path to misery. So how do you balance that? And thats I don't know if there's a good answer to that. I don't know if anyone's ever figured it out. And, and I think we're unfortunately told this prodigy story and this being the only way to make it in sports in media all the time. I mean, if you watch the new Netflix release, Hustle, 
I mean, that's exactly what you see. This poor guy has to hustle and try his hardest and absolutely just give up absolutely everything to achieve his goal of playing in the NBA or whatever it may be. And that's exactly like what we feel or I felt as a jiu-jitsu athlete. And it's one thing that I think is incredibly sad, but enlightening in a sense is to think about the amount of Brazilians, especially who maybe really only do have this jiu-jitsu opportunity to escape poverty or to escape the really difficult situation of being from Brazil, not being from Brazil, excuse me, having a wife who's from Brazil and being in that scenario many times. I mean, poverty, unlike in the United States, or at least where I live, is right next door. I mean, or it's it's in your backyard or it's really you're living it. And maybe for them, this is the only option for them. So that was another kind of thing that I thought of as I was making this transition away from jiu-jitsu of thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm competing with some Brazilian kid in the finals, semifinals, whatever. And I'm basically, this is their one out or so they perceive. And so it actually may be. And I'm just going to take that away being a upper middle class American. I mean, that, that was also something that I really struggled with throughout this transition. That is a really interesting take on this. And you bring up something that is, honestly, it's kind of one of the beautiful things about sport, but it can go the other way. Like you said, you hear these stories in, you know, boxing, soccer, and of course, Brazilian jiu-jitsu of people who are able to use their success in the sport to elevate themselves to economic success, right? This is, that's part of the reason why people want to be the best in the world in a lot of sports. It's not just for the gold medal. It's for the financial stability. The trick, of course, with jujitsu is I am not actually convinced that being a world champion really correlates to financial success. I mean, yes, there yeah. are some world champions who have managed to make it big, but it usually isn't the gold medal that got them the money. It's usually that they were able to build a career as an instructor or a business owner. And I'm kind of wondering if really there isn't that much of a correlation here. I mean, there's a lot of people who are not world champions. They're just, you know, generally competent black belts who run incredibly successful businesses and are way better off financially than a lot of the world champs. I mean, in jiu-jitsu, there's a lot of broke-ass world champions out there because there just yeah. isn't that much money in the sport. So I agree with you that I think we tell people the wrong narrative when we get them to join. We tell people that you have to become this world champion and that is the way to succeed. But I think that's a very narrow view because there's actually mm. a lot of ways that you can succeed. Sure. No, I think you're completely right. And it ends up being, and this is another sad thing, which I mean, maybe talking about it will shed more light on this and, and maybe other instructors will tell their students this, but or some that I worked with or trained with or saw, they wouldn't prioritize English because English has to be secondary for them in a sense, because it seems like at least from what I see that Brazilian jiu-jitsu in Brazil is even less financially stable. And then so their first goal is to exit Brazil. So how do you exit Brazil? You have to be seen, or you have to be noticed, or you have to receive some sort of sponsorship. And then how do you do that? Well, first you have to become super good at jiu-jitsu and then, and then you have to learn English. So it's secondary. And then, oh my gosh, just the, the amount of difficulty that I, that I see in the, I guess you could say, if we're creating an archetype of the typical Brazilian or a blueprint of the typical Brazilian athlete who wants to, to have jiu-jitsu as his career, it's just, it's such an uphill battle. And again, it just, makes me think about that but yeah you're right it's not just dependent on winning these world titles or receiving accomplishments but oh my gosh it seems like for you could even say the majority of brazilian boys or girls who want to use this as a sport it seems like that's necessary maybe that that myth is pushed on to people of all the cultures who want to train jiu-jitsu for life. Maybe that that particular myth was pushed on to me. You understand what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is one of the things about jiu-jitsu that is, that is actually really cool, which is that it is an empirical sport in theory, 
right? This is a sport that became famous because it works. That's basically mm. the marketing behind jujitsu. If most people from my age range who got into jujitsu when I did, they did so because they saw Hoist, you know, just whoop ass in the UFC and it sure. kind of changed the way that everyone looked at what an effective martial art is. And for better or worse, that has always been kind of the way that jujitsu sells the product is look at how well it works, right? That kind of informs everything about the sport. When you go to a lot of gyms, one of the ways that they will try to quote unquote onboard you, right, is they'll take the brand new white belt and they'll throw them into the fight pit and just have them start sparring right away, even before they know what they're doing. And that's probably not great for safety. We've talked about that on the podcast before, but the reason you do that is because if you do that, then your students will, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to suffer a grievous injury and they're never going to come back again, which is bad. But the idea behind that approach is you're trying to show people, look, this really works. I just threw you in here with a blue belt and they just tied you into a pretzel, right? That's that's the thing that jujitsu has always sold itself on is what the results are. And I think, unfortunately, that is kind of ballooned and compounded. And that's probably part of the reason why we worship the competitive success beyond all else. And that that is something that I would love to see a step back taken within jiu-jitsu. I'm not saying that people shouldn't, you know, go all out to try to win a world championship, but I think that we need to reframe the way we look at the art so that people have a healthier relationship with it and that they understand, look, there's a lot of ways that you can make jujitsu a positive force in your life. You don't have to be winning world championships. There's a lot of paths that this platform can give you. And I think that if you're just looking at being a world champ as your one way out, that's a really close-minded view of the world. And you're probably going to wind up not getting as much out of the sport as you could. Yeah, I completely agree. I definitely, from personal experience, did not get as much out of the sport as I possibly could have because of that single-minded approach. So what do you do differently these days? I mean, it sounds like you've kind of, you've got a lot of things going on in your life right now beyond just the the competitive scene. What do you do different versus what you would have done, say, a year ago? How has your life changed and your mindset changed? Sure. So at the moment, I'm in school and I'm studying to possibly become a therapist in the future or something in that mental health sphere that I seem to be feeling a lot of energy towards. And what I do differently is I, I only really train once a week. Jiu-jitsu, I, I swim. I, I What else do I do? I do yoga. I do a lot of different mindfulness, meditation, these, these things. And uh, jiu-jitsu has definitely taken a backseat. And that's for many different reasons. But the main reason is because I've, I've noticed the, the toll on my body that it seems to take. And of course, I'm in that process of kind of giving up this desire to maintain a high level of performance in the sport. I'm, I'm making that transition, which is actually another interesting topic from the competitor to the hobbyist who's just doing it for fun and teaches it for fun, teaches it to work on other skills and the skills that I'm predominantly focused on. And I use many of the the tactics or concepts that are presented in on your website, smaller circles, the art of learning, James Clear, the habit formation using atomic habits. I mean, those are all things that I'm constantly doing and were definitely things that I used in jiu-jitsu as well. So right now, Another habit that I'm trying to create is guitar. So I'm practicing guitar now. I'm trying to explore this musical side of me that was never looked into. And yeah, I'm just teaching once a week, like I said. And it's just it's just all fun now. It's, it's kind of like a, a sacred moment that I get away from the responsibilities of trying to make good grades in school and be a good husband and be a good friend and be a good son. 
Yeah. That kind of perspective is really, really important to develop. I mean, I remember even as a hobbyist myself, I had a similar journey with jujitsu. I started off in like all impressionable white belts. It quickly took over my whole life <laughs> and yeah. I, I just absolutely loved it. And I was never really looking to compete. I just did it for fun. I mean, but I was still in there training like multiple times a day sometimes just because wow. I was young, had nothing else to do. And I just loved it that much and I wanted to get good at it. But I found that as I kind of climbed up the belt rank and, you know, I got the blue belt and the purple and the brown and the black, and there's a lot of, you get a different perspective as you kind of move up the ladder in jujitsu. First of all, the longer you're in the community, you start to realize that, okay, like, look, this community is not perfect. You know, there are some kind of, there's a lot of gym drama that goes on. There's some people in jujitsu that are honestly not the best people. And as you get up the belt ranks, you kind of see the the ugly side of jujitsu. You realize it's not this perfect thing that I thought it was going to be. It's, it's mm. like everything in life. It's imperfect. It's got good. It's got bad. And that kind of takes a toll on your mindset. And then there's also just expectations about how good you should be. I mean, with any... Mm. With any competitive endeavor where it's just you and another person and someone's trying to win, I mean, someone's got to be the loser. And some of the time that's going to wind up being you. And it's easy to beat yourself up over that. And especially as I got to the senior belts, like purple and brown, I remember really beating myself up over whether I was good enough and whether I deserve to wear that belt. And of course, being a hobbyist, I mean, I'm at a massive disadvantage to the people who train this stuff full time. And I remember mm. really, it got to the point where instead of jujitsu building me up like it was doing in the lower belts, it started to feel like jujitsu was actually kind of pulling me down and it was a net negative in my life. Mm. And I, I took a lot of time off. I took a year and a half off and I kind of re reworked my thoughts and did a reset and came back and totally changed my perspective in terms of how I engaged with the sport. And I realized that I was putting so many expectations on myself about what kind of person I should be and what I should be able to do that I wasn't even bothering trying to have fun anymore. <laughs> you know, I would, sure. it had turned into this, this thing that I kind of hated because I just wasn't at the level I always wanted to be. And I'd kind of gotten away from that bit about how, you know, it's a journey. Every day is about improving a little bit. It's all about the process and not about the result. And I'd stepped away from that. And it wasn't until I got to, you know, late brown belt, early black belt that I was able to kind of reset and come to terms with jujitsu so I can enjoy the things about it without letting it stress me out. And that, mm. that was a big moment for me is getting to that point. I think that's just part of the, the aging and the maturing process as you spend more time in the sport. Sure. A few things came up as you were, you were speaking about your experience. And one of them in particular was maybe a thought about the downside of overly creating goals in your training because it seems like with everything there is this balance as you've been talking about between kind of order and chaos and with too much order leads to i mean you could say maybe a, a total totalitarian mindset in your training and therefore leading to lack of fun too much you could say too much pressure on yourself too many expectations and then if you're just have no goals at all, then you may just end up being some lazy bum who doesn't improve at all and doesn't really ever feel the kind of feeling that one can get when they do improve and when they do see improvement in their performances in the gym or in competition. And so I was, I was thinking, what are your, some of your thoughts on like the downside of making too many goals? Cause I know that goals are important, but how, how is the balance found in that? Oh man. I mean, that's, that's always a tough conversation because goals are a double-edged sword. On one hand, you need them because if you don't have goals, you don't have direction. You have to at least put out into the universe some intention of what you want to do. But on the other hand, excessive worship over the goals is going to lead you to just a life of misery <laughs> because mm. even if you succeed, right, even if you actually succeed in your goal, you're going to spend all of that time leading up to it 
focusing and obsessing on some potential future, something that yeah. may or may not ever happen, and rather than living in and enjoying and participating in the present moment. And then if you achieve your goal, yeah, you might have a day of euphoria, but then after that, mm. it's in the past. And now you're one of those washed mm. up guys who's talking about what he did in the past, right? Yeah. You're like Al Bundy talking about, you know, how great you used to be back in the day. Sure. And so the setting of goals is important for sure, because that's what gives us focus. But the attachment to goals is mm. where you get problems because that's where you're no longer enjoying your life. You're either living for some hypothetical future or maybe you're living in the past, but you're not living in the present. So I would say it's generally important to set goals, but you don't want to let your sense of identity and self-worth become attached to the goals. You almost mm. want to be scientific in a way where you look at it like an experiment, like, hey, I'm going to try to win the world championships this year. And if it doesn't work out, cool. Didn't work out the way that we thought. Let's go back to the lab and figure out what we can change. And even if it does work out and you win, cool, let's go back to the lab and figure out how you can improve. And the thing that I hear from a lot of, of peak competitors is that kind of reframing your mindset so that you're looking at those, those goals of yours, almost like a, an experiment, like you're going to the lab, you're trying to test. Mm. That's just much healthier because now your sense of ego is not attached to that win, right? It's just a test. Mm. It's just an experiment. Have fun doing it. Enjoy the present moment. Enjoy the process, but don't let your sense of identity get entwined with that result. Mm. Wow. I think you. You said it there completely. And that's, that's something that I struggled with in a large amount while I was going through my own game development. Cause we always have this idea of, oh, you have to create the perfect game in order to win the tournaments. And that was my goal always. How can I make these very small adjustments to this technique or that technique or this position or that position in order to gain the technical edge or the, the edge against my competitor. And I mean, oh my gosh, does that take you out of the moment and not allow you to enjoy the sport as much? I mean, I have almost a thousand notes in my phone of every single day after the end of training, I would think about why didn't this position work? Maybe I need to ask Gustavo Batista how to fix this, or maybe I need to ask Andy, help me fix this, or just so much over, over mentation, I guess if that's a word to to try and improve constantly and it, like you said it really did take me out of the present and and lead me to just not enjoying what i was doing yeah it's almost like um what i guess you could call a form of analysis paralysis right where you're so mm. caught up in this has got to be perfect i've got to do it absolutely perfect so i need to define the perfect game plan i need to have the perfect meal prep i need to have the perfect sleep schedule the perfect training camp the perfect training partners you get so obsessed with that that you spend all of this time getting caught up in your head and planning the stuff but honestly, that time probably would have been better spent doing something else. I mean, I mm. have definitely found myself guilty of this as well. You know, I, I understand, for instance, that there are very efficient ways to improve your ability to recall things mm. like spaced repetition, right? There's a lot of flashcard review things you can do that'll really help mm. you remember stuff. So I went through a phase where I was doing the same thing as you and I would write down everything. Like I would have mm. apps and notebooks and all of these places where I was recording everything that I was doing. And I was trying to optimize like my learning process to make it perfect. And yeah. what wound up happening, I realized at some point I am spending so much time just writing notes and reviewing notes. Like, yeah, there's a benefit to that to some extent, but at the end of the day, I'd probably get a lot more value just living my life and training and having fun, right? There's a, there's kind yeah. of diminishing returns at some point to, to trying to do the perfect preparation because that's yeah. impossible anyway, right? You can never do the perfect plan. There is no such thing. So at some point you have to kind of get out of your own head and just get back into it and just enjoy it. I mean, I, when I was starting judo, I remember I was like all good jujitsu people. I was terrified of judoka. I was terrified they were going to throw me and murder me. And so I was intent on, okay, I'm going to learn this perfect. And I remember coming to my instructor with like three pages of like rehearsed notes about the Uchimata. And I just had all of these questions and he humored me for a bit. But at some point he said, Steve, can you just shut the fuck up and just try the technique? Like we've been talking about the Uchimata from a theoretical standpoint for like 30 minutes now, but could you just 
bang out some reps and then maybe we can talk about it. And I think that that's important, right? That's another way that it's possible to get too caught up in your own head to the detriment of your performance. Mm. Another thing that that you were talking about before we entered into this loop here was the ugly side of jiu-jitsu and and realizing that ugly side once you've kind of moved past a certain point or once you've kind of shoveled out or shoveled your way through the mud. And then now you see, yes, you see this light at the end of the tunnel, but there's this other place that's so dark and grim and so terrible that you're just like, Oh my God, this exists. And so yeah. <laughs> what I, what I found is what's very funny and something that I have to really check myself on constantly. And I, I would consider it's not only an ugly side of jiu-jitsu, but also the ugly side of myself is this idea or this, this thing that many people do. And maybe you're, I guess, a doer of this as well, which is using jiu-jitsu as an outlet for your shadow or using jiu-jitsu as an outlet for this this really frustrated child within that didn't isn't getting his way. Do you ever, maybe in the past, did you ever slam someone? Did you ever do something overly aggressive because this person was kind of disrupting your your thought that you had of yourself? You understand what I'm trying to say? I I get you. There's no question that people's performance and conduct in jujitsu is a bit different from the way that they would engage in everyday life. You know, we've kind of, we go to jujitsu because it's sort of like fight club, right? You go there to, and it's different from the real world. It's an escape from the real world, but- the problem is sometimes maybe it gets too distant from the real world. And yeah, I've seen that. I mean, I've seen people go way above and beyond the the realm of what we would consider acceptable conduct during a role, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe just because people are, they've got that childhood bully that they're, they're trying to satisfy inside mm-hmm. of them. And on top of that, I mean, just, you know, general, just drama and bad conduct that you get at, at gyms, right? I mean, the reality is, look, the people in the jujitsu community are not perfect by any stretch, but when yeah. you put that black belt around your waist and you stand up in front of the class, you know, there's expectations about what kind of person you must be. People look up to black belts, even though, look, black belts are just as fallible as the rest of us, right? There's (laughs) the day I got my black belt, I was no different from the day before, right? It didn't change me as a person. It didn't make me a better human being. I'm still just as flawed and imperfect as I ever was. So I think there is that danger of going into a gym and getting so attached to your coach. You think they're this perfect person, but then Mm -hmm. one day you find out they're not right. One day you find out they've got the same kind of like interpersonal problems that the rest of us do. I mean, if you're really unlucky, maybe there's some really shady shit going on at your gym too. Right. I mean, I've seen that firsthand. And for me, that took a lot of the steam out of my, uh, my jujitsu engine, so to speak, when I realized, oh, some of these people that I looked up to, they've done some bad things. (laughs) you know and it it kind of makes me wonder i i've attached so much of my my personal sense of who i am to the sport and once you get further into the sport you kind of realize okay there's more to this than just what the marketing says it's just like any walk of life there are flawed imperfect people here and some of these people that i thought were legends and heroes they're just regular people and it kind of gives you a bit of a system shock because you realize that jujitsu is not this utopia it's just a thing right it's it's got its ups and its downs just like anything else in life i would say though that jiu-jitsu does seem to at least on the superficial level, breed good people. Like at least from what I see from the people that I've been around in my own jiu-jitsu atmosphere have been generally very kind and caring and at least I think the best word is accepting people. And have you had a similar experience? Oh yeah, one 100%. I mean, I I think that the the pros of jiu-jitsu dramatically outweigh the cons. I mean, Mm. I I recommend that pretty much everyone, they don't have to stick with jujitsu for the rest of their lives, but jujitsu is one of those things that I think most people should at least try once just to see if it's for them. Because there are so many benefits to jujitsu, both from a physical standpoint. I mean, presuming you're not getting injured repeatedly, right? There's uh, sure. there's health benefits, there's mindset benefits, and there's this incredible social benefit as well that doesn't get talked nearly enough about. I mean, I think most people get into jujitsu because they want to learn how to protect themselves, right? That's certainly why I got into this. But the more you train, the less important that becomes because, I mean, the less likely it is that you're going to get into a bar fight when you're 
50 years old and you've got kids, right? It's just not li- yeah. not as likely to happen as it used to be, I guess. But also you realize that the other stuff, the the social aspect, the ability to to test yourself and go outside of your comfort zone and meet new people and get humbled uh, in a very public fashion, these are all mm. things that are good for you. And that kind of stuff is what I love about jujitsu. That social aspect, that social element to me is is at this point, it's way more important than just pajama wrestling. I like how you said in a public way, become, I guess, not necessarily humiliated, but you gain humility in a public way. There's other people watching. So there is that, there's a lot of conflict, internal conflict that's constantly going on as you're training jitsu. Like, oh my gosh, is the, did the coach see me get beat up by that guy? Or, oh, did this, did my best buddy, he, he just, he just did this to me. Does that mean he's better than me? Or there's so much, you're right. There's so much human connection that is just so incredibly valuable. And as you said, can be easily transferred into so many, if not every walk of life, because I would say every walk of life has some sort of human interaction. Yeah. I, I remember when I was a white belt, I remember seeing my coach get tapped out for the first time. This oh, no. gigantic black belt came to do a drop in. Guy must have outweighed my coach by like a hundred pounds. And of course he just tooled him, right? I mean, you got two black belts. One of them is like a hundred pounds bigger than the other. Who's going to win? It's pretty obvious. But I still remember just being kind of shocked. Like, oh my goodness, my instructor lost. I've never seen that before, yeah. right? Like what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think takes a while to get past, but Part of why jujitsu is good is it can help you get past that, right? You realize at some point that losing is not a bad thing. It's not a reflection on you. It's part of the process. It's how we get better. It's like a test we do. And okay, clearly that test didn't pan out. So now we go back to the lab and we change things. And that's one of the things I'm very thankful for about jujitsu is it taught me that. It taught me that, look, going out there and trying something crazy and you know trying something different and losing, that's not humiliating unless you make it humiliating, right? Whether or not something is humiliating is totally up in your own head. And the people People who tend to be really successful, they're the ones who are willing to go out there and try something and fail publicly and just brush it off and try again later. And so I'm very thankful to jujitsu for that because it taught me to not be afraid of of trying things that might make me look bad. Mm. This a thought popped up as you were you were speaking, and this may be I don't know some sort of ego inflation on my own part, but let's just disregard that and say that <laughs> it's not. Do you think that possibly those who let's say, have less of a self-reflexive tendency and who those who are incredibly dedicated and they have a higher chance of success than someone who has a, let's say, a more of an introspective or like I said, self-reflexive tendency and someone who's also dedicated. So, you're comparing, I'm trying to make a comparison between, let's say, somebody who doesn't really think much about what they're doing, they're just doing it. And the other person who does the same amount of effort, you could say, but thinks a lot about what they're doing. Do you think there's a drawback for over self-reflection for, I guess, competition success and just success in life? Hmm. Good question. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because on one hand, preparation is critical. Right. It's if you just wing everything you do, you're probably going to struggle. You need to do some degree of preparation and introspection. But on the other hand, if you let that consume you, then I think there's a line. I think that it gets to the point where at some point it's no longer a healthy thing and a, and it's holding you back. So like with so many things in life, I think there's a balance. I think you need to spend some time being self-reflective and being self-critical. At the very minimum, you need to be self-aware of what you're doing wrong and what you could be doing better. But I think that if you let that define you and just eat up all of your, your mental cycles, then it gets to the point where it can become a really toxic thing and it can, it can hold you back. It can, can spiral into depression, can spiral into anxiety. And we certainly see that in jujitsu in the competitive scene where people kind of get in their own way by overthinking things. I sometimes wondered, based on this thought, if, and like I said, maybe I'm trying to feel superior in some way, but I sometimes wondered if those who are at the highest level, those who are just competing, winning gold medal after gold medal after gold medal, that they 
they don't really think so much. They just, they just do. They just, yeah. they just, somebody tells them this is, this is good and that's, this doesn't work. And okay, I'm just going to do that. And they just, of course, they have to test and they have to try and they have to succeed and they have all these positive thought loops that come off after succeeding and they continue with that and so on and so forth. But I wondered that so much in the past. I mean, I, I can't say myself, but I do get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people who, who have gone down that road. And I can tell you that a few episodes ago, we recorded with Emily Kwok. I mean, she's a legend in the sport, multi-time world champion. Mm. When she was in her 30s, she retired from jiu-jitsu professionally, went off, kind of uh, opened up her gym, uh, had kids. And now into her 40s, she's back on the competitive scene. And mm. she came on the podcast and talked about what was different from her at, you know, 20 and 30 versus at 40 now that she's come back. And she's, she said that she feels that she is a better competitor now than she ever was in the past. Mm. And a big part of that was because she got out of her own way mentally. She was mm. less caught up in whether, you know, her parents were going to be proud of her and whether she was going to live up to her potential and whether Marcella was going to be proud of her. She was less caught up about that and more just, okay, I like, I don't have anything to prove anymore. You know, yeah. she's already a world champion. She's not a, she's not relying on this competition to define her future success. She's only there now because she enjoys it and because mm. it's a challenge and she wants to test herself. And she talked about how the difference in her mindset of facing like a really tough opponent back in her, her original run, you know, man, if, if you were facing a really tough opponent, that would consume your whole life. But now her mindset is just awesome. Bring it on. Show me what you got and I'll show you what you got and let's see who wins. And it just was a very different mentality because she was able to let go of the need to win yeah. from an ego standpoint. And she was there because she she wanted to try to win, but she didn't need it to validate herself. Really awesome conversation. I highly recommend if people haven't heard that one that they give yeah. that a go because it. I thought that that was such a, a freeing thing to say that like, yes, you can still try to do this stuff. You can still go and try to compete at the highest level and it's possible to do that without letting it define you as a human being and without letting victory or loss, you know, carry you up or carry you down. You can be separate from those results and still have fun and still participate and still win, but you don't have to let it define you. I find that to be so incredibly difficult for myself. <laughs> but I, I think I think what you said is is so true. Well, it, it is hard. I mean, I I would ask you your perspective on this as someone who's put a lot more competitive effort in than I have. I mean, what are your feelings on the matter? What's been your personal experience here? Um, I mean, in regards to, I feel like as I was competing in the past, I was so, I guess, comparative between myself and others. I mean, every, like you're saying, not attaching too much self-worth to results or my performances in the gyms was exactly what I did. Every single loss at the gym would feel like I just was demoted in a sense. I just, I just lost my status that is purely just in my mind. And I mean, again, this is probably another huge factor as to why I personally move away from social media greatly. I mean, the amount of comparison that happens when I, when, like you said, you have this mindset that I need to win or I need to do this. I mean, that just makes life hell in a sense. And I mean, at competitions, I would try to psych myself up all the time, telling myself that I was the best, telling myself that these other people do not even deserve to be on the same mat as me. I was trying to inflate myself more and more and more, trying to to really give myself a false sense of security in my confidence, if that makes any sense. But it's not the way. I think it's the way that's suggested and it's the way that's maybe even taught by those who are at the pinnacle of the sport or those who are the, the best athletes in the sport. But I think that kind of goes to the idea that maybe the best athlete is not the best teacher because I know for a fact that that mindset of believing that you're the best and looking in the mirror and telling yourself that you're the best and telling yourself that you're a machine and all these other things are just, oh my gosh, they're just not healthy at all. And they will lead to disintegration. And if you're not 
mature enough to reintegrate or transform, you're just, you're just in hell. That's, that's, that was my experience. Yeah. I, I kind of feel, I mean, we all know that confidence is important, right? Confidence is generally a good thing, but there's different ways to be confident and some are, some are good and some are not necessarily. I mean, if for you, confidence is a defense mechanism that you're using to mm. try to pump yourself up, that's arguably not the healthiest. But if you are confident as a natural byproduct of the work you've put in, that's probably slightly healthier. You know, if you've done the work, you've gone in there and you know that whatever happens happens because you prepared the best that you possibly could and you're ready, that kind of confidence that is based on training and process, that I think is good. But if you're using confidence to kind of create an ego barrier around yourself, I, mm. I can see why that would be unhealthy because eventually someone's going to pop that barrier, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what are you going to be left with when that happens? I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of fighters like Ronda Rousey who looked unbeatable until they didn't. And then they just, you know, once that veneer of invincibility and that confidence was gone, they were never able to get it back together again. And I wonder to, to what extent some types of confidence might be better than others. Because if your confidence is artificial, like you said, if it's a defense mechanism, then eventually that's going to fail. And what are you left with after that? Yeah. I think it's neat that you you're, you talked about gaining confidence from knowledge of preparation or knowing that you put in the work. And I think I knew that at the time. I knew that I was training with the highest level people that I could. And that was even used by myself to further, I guess, drive myself into the illusion that I am the best. I deserve this gold medal and this other person does not because I have put in the most amount of work with the best amount of quality. So, I mean, again, ego is incredibly deceptive. So it makes sense that I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would ask in terms of where you're at today, I mean, if you could go back time machine, talk to white belt Darren, yeah. what would you tell yourself to do differently? I mean, presuming that you still wanted to, to go down this road, what kind of things would you have done differently yeah. to have a healthier relationship with the sport? Mm, that's a tough question. I, I don't know if, of course, I can give you two answers. The first answer would be that I would never change anything because I'm, I'm so grateful and, and happy for the life that I have now. And, you know, how any one single thing, the classic butterfly effect could somehow impact what I have now. So the answer would be nothing. But let's just say I'm talking to a white belt now and that resembles me in some way and he has dreams and aspirations of becoming a black belt or champion, what would I what would I tell him? I would almost want to shake him and be like, wake up, my friend. This is not the only thing that you have in this life. That's what I would love to tell him. But I don't want to break his heart. So I would tell him, I don't know. Well, I've got an idea. One thing that I would suggest is for people who really want to do jujitsu as a as a career, you know, they want this mm -hmm. to be their life. I think that they need to start sowing the seeds early for what their post-competitive career is going to look like. Mm, yes. I think a lot of people, they're so focused on just the competitive side that they don't realize, okay, at some point, I got to actually make money off of this for the long term. I mean, do I, am I going to start a gym? Am I going to start some sort of instructional business, an equipment company? Am I going to do seminars? I think that getting started on that sooner rather than later is only going to help people because it gives them a sense of safety, if nothing else, right? It means that you know then that you have a future in the sport. No matter what happens on the competitive scene, things are going to be okay for you because you got other options. You've got other things on the go. And I think that's freeing in a lot of ways if you, if you know that you have other things you can do. Now, some people might disagree with that. I know that there's a lot of people who say, burn the boats, right? Throw everything else out in your life and only focus mm -hmm. on this one thing because that's the only way to succeed. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's good feedback. I mean, look at guys like Gordon Ryan, right? Unarguably the best Nogi grappler in the world. And he's out there selling a ton of instructionals, right? He's out there yeah. trying to build up the business side of things. So clearly it's possible to, to have a broader spectrum of things that you offer. And I think it's good for people to think about that sooner rather than later. Oh, no, I think you knocked or hit the nail, hit whatever the phrase is, <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the coffin, something along those lines. And that makes so much sense because, I mean, being 18, I think it's so difficult to think of anything but one thing. But like you said, knowing that 
in the future, once you've done your career in competing and so on and so forth, you're going to have to make money in some way. And that's something that I didn't consider at all. Not even a single little piece of consideration was given to, okay, once I've become a Black Belt World Champion, what next? I didn't even think about that one bit. So I think that's that's really valuable what you just said. And like you said, I mean, instructionals, teaching, all those are great aspects. And But thinking of those possibilities, those opportunities of teaching, opening a gym may even change the path that this person, this hypothetical person, or you could even say myself at 18, would choose. Because if I if I think if I were to go back and I tell myself like, okay, you can do this, but that's going to lead to opening a gym. That's going to lead to teaching, selling instructionals, online websites, whatever it may be, which are all wonderful things. But if I was told that, I would be like, I don't know if I want to do that anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely (laughs) sounds a lot less sexy. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, I feel bad for the pro competitors though, because this is one of the only walks of life where being really good is not enough. Mm. I mean, if you want to be an accountant or a lawyer Mm. or a carpenter or a plumber, if you're really good at your job, that's probably going to be enough to carry you, right? I mean, mm. and that's something that you can be proud of. But in this jujitsu landscape, we're so focused on world championships that for a lot of people, they don't feel it's good enough to just be really good. They only feel validated if they are the best, the absolute yeah. unequivocal best. And that's a really high standard to hold someone to, <laughs> right? To, yeah. to say that you have to be the number one in the world. I mean, can you imagine if you're, you know, you are a good carpenter, but I'm looking for the world's best carpenter and I will not work with anybody else. Yeah. I feel like part of the problem here, and this is where the jujitsu community can maybe step it up. I think that we place an undue sense of value on how many world championships Mm. we've provided. I've seen really good black belts give out really powerful free content to help people. And then people on the internet will just respond and say, ah, why should I listen to this guy? He's never won a gold medal in the world. I mean, like, look, you're still talking with, to one of the absolute best black belts in the world, just because they never won a world championship doesn't mean they don't know what they're talking about or that they're a bad coach. And I think that sometimes we in the community put an undue pressure on people and we assign worth to people based on their competitive wins. And yeah, I mean, it's cool. It's awesome that people go and they succeed and achieve at that level, but there's got to be more to life than just that. Yeah. No, I think it's funny as I was waning from my jiu-jitsu competitive career, which who knows, maybe in the future will open back up. But I was, I started to get into, I, I forgot his name, but he's a teacher he does the science of jiu-jitsu on YouTube. I forgot his name. Maybe maybe he is a, a student of Rob Bernacki. You're you're talking about Rory Van Vliet, I believe. Yes, exactly. And oh my gosh, does he teach well? Like holy shit. Like he explains things in incredible ways. And I was just stunned when I watched this. I was like, oh my gosh. Now I have to be like this guy. Like, even though I just won all this stuff, this guy's yeah. teaching and probably making more money than, than I can even imagine doing in my own little online videos here and there. So you're right. It's just, there's, there's so, so much. Well, let me ask you then, if people want to follow you, check out your work, get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? So you can find me on Instagram at DCD. What is it actually? I don't even know my Instagram handle anymore. <laughs> don't. Well, you don't have to worry too much about that because I'll put a link. In- don't follow me. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, you, you don't have to worry too much about knowing the actual letters. I'll dig it up and I'll put a link in the show notes. So if anyone is listening and wants to check out DC, just go into the, into the show notes and there will be a link right there that you can tap. But anything else you wanted to plug while I've got you here? Nothing at all. I just want to plug you guys and say thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you're providing to the community. And I do remember my hashtag or tag. It's DC underscore DeAngelis. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook. If you have any messages, if you have any personal messages about my own life, you can always message me. Maybe I can send you a piece of information that can somehow be helpful to you along your own jiu-jitsu journey. But other than that, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity and this conversation. 
Oh, thanks, man. I, I greatly appreciate it. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. So it's awesome to be able to connect and have you on here. Hey, I got a question for you then. Yes. What are you reading these days? Any any book recommendations to people in a similar situation to you where they're kind of at that, that yeah. existential crisis point of deciding what they want to do with BJJ in their life? I'm just curious if you read anything that really shifted your mindset. Oh, oh my gosh, the amount of things that I'm reading is is too much. But I'm currently reading a book that goes into mysticism, and particularly the the avenue of mysticism that's that's in Christianity. But not I'm not necessarily just focused on Christianity. I read a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism as well. In regards to what I would suggest to somebody who's interested in maybe knowing themselves a little bit more in in this existential crisis kind of mode of thinking. Carl Jung is also a great thing. Looking at his book, The Undiscovered Self is always great. And then if you want to just be purely entertained, but also know yourself at the same time, I think any of Joseph Campbell's books, he's a famous mythologist, understanding our myth and the myths of our ancestors seems to be extremely helpful for me. And maybe it'll be helpful for you as well. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, man. I greatly appreciate it. And hey, if anyone wants to check out our stuff, uh, the plug on my end, of course, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That links off to everything we've ever made. So if you want to get any of the almost 200 podcast episodes we've done now, they're on there. Full database of all of the concepts we talk about if you want a quick primer on the ideas behind what we're saying. And of course, that also links off to our awesome premium service. There's a big button at the top there that says premium. You can go there. Alternately, you can just go directly to the premium website, which is bjjmentalmodels.com. Highly recommended you check that out. There's over 50 hours of instructional content included on there right now. And in addition to the instructional material, one of the things we offer is direct coaching. One of the people actually on our coaching team is Rory Van Vliet, who you were talking about before. So if anyone out there wants Rory to do a technical breakdown of your rolling footage and make fun of you for all of your mistakes, that's how you do it. Check out BJJ Mental Models Premium. Again, the website is bjjmentalmodels.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes once again so that people can easily find it there. But thanks a lot, Darren. I greatly appreciated that. Really interesting talk and something that I don't think enough people discuss in this community, but we all go through it. And so I'm I'm really happy to have this on record because I think it's going to benefit a lot of people. So thank you again for coming by. Oh, I certainly hope so. That's that's the goal. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And of course, everyone out there, thank you so much to you as well. Greatly appreciated having you here every week. Talk to you next time. Take care.